Micah chapter 7, starting off with the first three verses. Micah says, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless our considerations tonight. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for each one that you have brought here together this evening. Father, I thank you for the fellowship that can be found in the name of Jesus and in his word. Father, I pray that it would be something that we would lay hold of as something rich and something of a blessing and something that feeds us, Lord. What a privilege it is to do your will, Father. And you do call us to assemble together. So thank you for this time. And I pray that we would not leave this place unsatisfied. But Father, we might take joy in your word. Bless us by it, Father, I pray. Help us desire to want to do and then to do all that you have for us to do. We praise you, Lord, and we love you for having things for us to do. Bless us now in your word and its consideration, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's been a while since I did a Q&A uh, type lesson. Uh, you might recall, it's, I think it's been over a year now since, uh, since I did one of those that I title and even have Q&A as our background there on the slide. But from time to time, it, quite often I field questions. I get emails, texts, or just in conversations I get questions, ask, people asking you know, my position on, on a passage or what something might mean if I have any insight or something along those lines. And I fielded a question this week, and I thought I would do a Q&A this weekend uh, as a result. But as it turns out, the question kind of prompted me to go digging into some things regarding that question, so I just kind of focused just on that question. So uh, we might push back a Q&A for another time here in the near future, but for tonight I'm just going to kind of address this one question because I liked where it took me and I felt like the Lord gave me the liberty and, and indeed the leading to bring that out this evening. Um, one of the things that the question reminded me of, even though it wasn't out of this passage here uh, specifically, uh, was this passage here in Micah chapter 7. Um, this passage has the prophet speaking, as you can tell, just by those first three words we read, woe is me, woe is me. Micah was living in an unhappy time, and he was given that task of prophesying about further unhappy times to come as a result of those, well, those ones and, and their sin in that day, and the Lord's judgment on those things. And when he said, woe is me, and he went on to talk about these different ones who were doing evil, specifically there in verse 3, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. They were committed to it, as we'll see here in just a moment. He describes those different ones and just how evil they were. Now, as is the case with most prophecy, he was speaking to those ones certainly about their time then present, but he was also talking about a time then yet to come in the short term that there would be a near fulfillment of that prophecy and a judgment that would take place before that end time judgment that we can read about elsewhere in scripture uh, kind of a three level type of application to this passage and different ones here when he says woe is me i am like those who gather summer fruits uh, when i want something new i want something fresh I'm, I'm i'm gleaning these vintage old grapes that well it's late in the harvest and i want the good stuff but they're all gone it says 
The faithful man has perished from the earth. He was speaking about present issues, but again, he knew that there were some times to come where there was still going to be the faithful man perishing from the earth. That being said, it's a troubling passage from a troubling book, and he was speaking to a troubled person or people uh, about troubling times to come yet. If you keep going in that passage, look there at verse 5 and read down to verse 7. Do not trust in a friend, he says. This was a bad time. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. That would be, should be, your wife that he's speaking of. Don't trust her, he's saying. For, uh, well, what does it go on to say? For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not too uncommon. If I can, I mean, kind of joking there, but, you know. A man's enemies are the men of his own household, it says. Therefore, I will look for the Lord. <laughs> look to the Lord, and that is where we need to look. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Difficult time, and difficult times to come. A sad state of things, to be sure. And it's a reminder that in the absence of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Spirit to change a heart, and then further to lead and compel His people into walking in the path, of faithfulness and righteousness. Sin brings wickedness. That's just what it does. And Israel was well immersed in their sin. And wickedness was the result. And evil among those people there. Uh, a man's enemies may include those of his own household, it says there. That's a dire place to be. And when Micah says, woe is me, he meant it. He meant it. And it's still, again, yet to come. Verse 3 there articulates it once again. That's kind of our focus that I want you to keep in the back of your mind there, particularly that first part, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. Uh, both hands are capable of, well, we're going, to, we're going to poke at it here in just a little bit, but whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. These ones, well, they were heartily grabbing onto evil things and doing those things with all of their might. In the English Standard Version, I'll just give you a couple of different versions here so that you can have just a little bit of clarity. These other translations. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Isn't that a sad consideration? Man, I am really good at this horrible thing. I am exceptionally talented at this wicked, sinful thing. Eh, it is what it is. Both their hands are put forth and are upon what is evil to do it diligently. The Amplified Version says. Darby says this. Both hands are for evil. To do it well. The thought there in all of these translations, different perspectives perhaps, there's a commitment to the skill of sin. I used to, I used to work uh, with a number of guys who would claim that their talent was drinking. Man, I can, I can drink people under the table. You know, and, and that was what, what they did. It was what their passion was. I mean, legit, they were passionate about it. Listen, I'm not going to get into the sinfulness of drinking and that sort of thing, but you take a vice of anything... I'm not talking about this. <laughs> if you find your peace, if you find your joy, if you find the comfort that should be yours in the Lord and by the Lord, and you invest that or find that in something else, then it's going to be a problem. And these ones that I'm speaking of did that. It didn't matter merely that it was alcohol, uh, but that was what their skill was. They were skilled at drinking and drinking much and drinking well. There are different ones, different individuals, on, on a much vaster, much wider, much more carnal uh, uh, measure that are invested and skilled in their hands, uh, figuratively and literally, in doing 
sin. They're committed. They're talented in those things. And that's a sad kind of thing. Um, We're going to return back to that thought in just a moment. Coming back to Micah chapter 7 here near the end of our passage. But I'll tell you the question that I fielded and what prompted me to consider this thought and this theme this evening. Turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. If you remember, if you are familiar with the book of Judges and Israelite history, then you know that in the days of the Judges, after Joshua uh, passed away from this earth and, well, Israel was left to govern themselves uh, to a certain extent, they demonstrated very quickly they weren't capable. And so what would happen is they'd fall into the idolatry that was abundant with those ones that they remained, didn't drive out of their nation. As the Lord had directed them to, they failed to do that. And so they found themselves immersed in the sin and the idolatry of those ones that occupied the land before they got there. And so what would happen is they would sin and they would be consumed with that sin. And the Lord would judge as he told them that he would. And he would raise up an oppressor from one of the nations thereabout. And then they would be under oppression for a set amount of years or a set amount of time. And the Lord would when they cried out to him and turned their heart toward him in repentance and crying out for help, he would help and he would raise up what they called the judges. And there were these individuals who would be strengthened and enabled to go in and deliver from the oppressor in that respective time, for that time. And even after that oppressor was removed, sometimes those judges would remain for a time of oversight for their respective time. Now, in Judges chapter 3, we see Ehud. Ehud was the second one of those judges, the second of several of those men. And there was a woman involved, too. Deborah was among them that was sent there to help God's people. And we'll pick it up in Judges chapter 3 and verse 12. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Now notice that it says that he strengthened Eglon. I think that's interesting, right? The Lord strengthened Eglon, this enemy of his, to enable him to do what he wanted him to do in bringing that judgment upon Israel. Strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And Eglon, you can read it for yourself if you want to, but he gathered, well, the Amalekites and the Ammonites to come in together with him so that they might together oppress the people of Israel. Stepping down to verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And then the story goes on. If you aren't familiar with the story, again, read it for yourself. It's dramatic. It has some espionage in there. It has a little suspense and some tension. But here's some nutshell for you. Just a quick summary. Eglon was a large man, that king. Ehud made his way in, and he strapped up a foot and a half dagger on the in- Well, I believe it was the inside of his right thigh. It could have been the outside. Regardless, it was on his right thigh, it records. And he put it under his clothes. He told Eglon, as he came in with a number of dignitaries, he told Eglon, I have a message for you, a secret message for you. And Eglon told everyone to leave. And they did. And they left him alone with Ehud. And that was his mistake, because... Ehud delivered the message. Stepping down to verse 20. I loved this when I was a kid. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took his left-handed man, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. 
Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. And for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails, it says in the New King James Version. If you're reading a King James Version, I'm confident it says dirt. The dirt came out. And I'll leave that to your imagination. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Pretty descriptive there in regards to how Ehud operated. Yeah? A left-handed man. He reached with his left hand to his right thigh. Now, it could have been on the outside here and done this. It could have been on the inside here and done this. Uh, the question was, why was Ehud, these left-handed guys, Ehud and some other ones, why is it identified that the, he was left-handed? Why is that made a big deal of? Uh, it wasn't just Ehud. There are a number of other ones in Scripture we'll get to here in just a second. Why was that identified, and why was it, why was it stated here? I think when we had our judges study some years ago, I went over this a little bit and covered it just in, in kind of in passing, but I thought that I would address it tonight. Um, as the story continues, Ehud escapes, returns to Ephraim, blows the trumpet and calls all of the people, and all the people say, we're going with you. And they went, and they, uh, he, under the, his leadership, they, well, they defeated the Amalekites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and left that oppression. And they were stirred to follow that man, that man Ehud. He's a good leader, obviously, but why the left-handed talk? Why all of that? Why the reaching over to the right thigh? Now, again, Secret Service and all of that kind of stuff. I've, I've had small dealings with the Secret Service when the president came in back in 2004 during the four more years tour. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush came through. Secret Service came through. Man, they were impressive guys. They searched everything. Searched top to bottom. Our station searched us top to bottom. They, they went every place because that was where the point of refuge, safe refuge, was going to be if something happened to George W. And so they came in and they, I mean, they would pat you down. they do anything that was in any way involved in the whole situation. They were quite, well, secure. They were secure. So I wonder if, if Ehud came in, you know, bringing a tribute to the king, if the Secret Service, so to speak, didn't pat him down, cha 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 chop or something like that, you know? Maybe it was on the inside of his thigh. Or maybe they weren't expecting it because they were expecting a right-hander to go like this and bring out a secret dagger. I'm not sure. There are a lot of details in here. But it specifically says left hand, right thigh, and this is what he did. Ehud, a left-handed man. How come? How come? Well, let's go through this just a little bit. You look at that term, left-handed. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word for left-handed is related to the word for shut or impeded. Shut down, shut up, impeded, blocked, something like that. And in its complete form, and I looked at a number of different Hebrew scholars, myself not being one, and they all agree that in the complete form, it actually doesn't mean left-handed. It means right impeded is what it means. It means that the right side is off, impeded on the right side, which leaves the left hand to be the default. Typical term that they used, left-handed, right impeded, left hand. But first off, let me just get it right out, just in, for the first simple consideration. It might have been that he had an impediment on his right side. It might have been that he couldn't use his right arm, so his left hand was there. And, and that was that. His right hand was impeded by a physical Impediment. We talked about Mephibosheth this morning, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, the king of Israel. He suffered a fall when he was a child when they were trying to escape. His feet were impeded. His feet were injured. Surgery wasn't a thing back then to the measure that it is today anyway. 
And so Ehud could have had something congenital. He could have had a traumatic injury. He could have suffered an illness, such as some people that we know have suffered an illness that, that impeded his function of his right hand. I don't know. I'm not saying that that's what it was, but it could have been. It's possible that Ehud was simply physically impeded on the right side, and so that was shut down, so he was left-handed. All right, there's potential number one uh, of why he was left-handed. Or he might have legitimately been left-handed. Dad's left-handed. Allie's left-handed. Two of my nephews. Cody's left-handed. He's waving at me with his right hand. Make, uh, riddle me this, right? Uh, two of my nephews I know at least are left-handed. Might be a couple of other ones in here. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But the, it is a ma- minority these days that there are lefties. There's not quite the stigma that there was back in the day today in being a lefty. As a matter of fact, it's used oftentimes as an advantage. Dad trained me to wrestle from the right side as a left-hander. I was, let me explain that. Lefties rode on the right side. Right, righties rode on the left side. So he trained me to do it on the right side. Kind of people weren't used to that, so it gave you an advantage. He was left-handed, so he showed me how to do it. So you kind of switch up. Baseball players, some are switch hitters. Man, you talk about uncoordinated. I can't hit a ball very well. I mean, I can hit a baseball. But the thought of switching over, and some of these guys can bat against a major league pitcher left-handed and right-handed. That's incredible skill. Incredible skill. I'll get to more of that here in just a second. But back in, in biblical times, and... If you do the research, they say that two-thirds of the present-day global population frowns upon lefties. says that it's, well, if you get superstitious about it, a number of these ones who are superstitious or have interesting religious beliefs, they believe that it's an omen for mischief. They believe it's an omen for uh, dishonesty and all kinds of different things. So they try to swap it over. They try to, if they see a toddler working with their left hand, They try to work it over to the right hand. There's a stigma involved. Even in modern day United States, just simply, I've heard it. I think that I've heard it actually from maybe even in my own family, maybe distant family, that someone started working with their left hand and my great grandma or someone took the spoon out of the left hand and put it in the baby's right hand because they didn't want them to have the trouble of having to have, you know, play left-handed guitars or Left-handed, whatever you know, other left-handed scissors. That was that's that was a thing back when I was a kid. Uh, there was an issue with them being left-handed. Listen, in biblical times, the right hand got all the glory. The right hand got all the all the support. And well, there was a certain stigma. Turn to Genesis chapter forty-eight. Perhaps just the very term that they used for left-handed being right side impeded. Showing that this that should have been the powerful one was impeded, so just default to the left hand. Maybe that suggests the stigma that seems to have been there at the time. But we can see all kinds of examples where the right hand was honored. The right hand was, was pointed to as the power and the blessing and all of those things. Joseph brought his two sons before his dad Jacob, or Israel as he's referred to here in Genesis forty-eight fourteen. You remember what happened? Israel, Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim, the younger's head, who was, there it is, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. 
Manasseh was supposed to receive the first, the right hand upon his head because he was the eldest. And the figurative power, the blessing was supposed to be in this right hand. And he put it on Ephraim's head instead. The right hand is the one where blessing came from. And it was important enough that Joseph tried to reposition, if you remember the story, and say, no, no, dad, you switch over here. And Jacob corrected him, no, I'm doing what I'm doing intentionally. Right hand is the right hand of blessing. Throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we see the right hand is where the power is. Power of God. Any other power is represented in the right hand. I'll just zip through these for you so you don't have to turn there. Exodus 15.6, this is Moses singing after the Red Sea deliverance. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. In Deuteronomy 33, when Moses is blessing that generation that was going to go into the promised land, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Where power came from, that law came. Ecclesiastes, we were there this morning. He says, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. And then Mark 16, verse 19, we know what this is. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand was important. The right hand is always represented. This is certainly Jesus ascending, uh, certainly after the days of Ehud, but the right hand has always been the figurative position of power. When the the priests, the high priest and the priests were anointed, blood was put on the right thumb, right ear, right toe, anointing oil, right thumb, right ear, right toe. It was the right side that was always, always dignified. And it was designated as being the place of power. It's not unthinkable to believe that Ehud was left-handed despite despite uh, that stigma that was placed on the left hand. Um, he might have been naturally left-handed and dealt with it and whatever stigma may have come as a result. Uh, and that's why it's identified there. Hey, this guy's left-handed. He, he was a left-handed guy, certainly the minority here. But look, look what he's doing nevertheless. Despite the stigma, despite the potential for opposition, despite the taboo, despite the issues that might have come, he remained left-handed and he did work that we see here. The third thing that we might look and see why it was brought out and why it was delineated so clearly. Well, this is actually the one that I kind of lean toward. Uh, why he was left-handed and why it states that here. Turn to Judges chapter 20. There's some other places where left-handedness is presented in Scripture. In Judges 20, as the book is closing out here, we see some contention between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of the tribes in Israel. And they're going to battle against one another. I won't get into the battle and all the ins and outs regarding that, but... Well, as oftentimes we see in Scripture, we see the powers that were presented there, the numbers and and some identifying factors regarding these ones who were involved. And that's what we see in Judges chapter 20, describing uh, some of those armies there. Judges chapter 20, verse 15. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men. And look what it says in verse 16. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. 
Everyone could sling a stone. This is important too. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. These were skilled soldiers. I mean, these guys who were slings, sling guys or, or users of slings, I, I, I think I was a kid. I might have been a young adult. I don't remember. Um, oh, I was a young adult because Brother David was doing VBS and he had a sling. You guys remember that? We went back behind the building in Rinker Road. I didn't know how to use that thing. A couple of little flops of leather that went here and you had to yeah, clobber myself, man. I mean, legit, legit. I was not talented at it, not good, never practiced it or anything. And probably if I did practice, I wouldn't be any good at it. But some of these guys were pretty certain in their shots, pretty certain in their talent. And these guys who were left-handed, every one of them could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. That's impressive there. Now, Fast forward to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I'll bring this together, I promise. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. This is many years after Ehud. Many judges following him. And then through Saul's, uh, Saul's reign and into David's time on the throne. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. This passage here, it records a number of the additions to David's army. Now, it's in the time when he's getting ready to unify all the nation, himself being king of Judah, and he's going to unify all the nation, north and south, all together. But it's given kind of a history lesson of where his men came from, where his armies came from. And it records there, well, it pointed back to those days when he was not yet on the throne, but his army was growing there in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag, still on the run, still gone, uh, not on the throne, uh, Saul still holding that throne, while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. Now, it doesn't say they were left-handed there exclusively, right? It says that they used both their left and their right hand. Evidently, they were ambidextrous. Switch hitters. Allie's ambidextrous to a measure. She writes with her left hand and does very little else with her left hand. She throws a football right-handed. She boxes right-handed. She crosses, you know. Uh, (laughs) She does throw a football. I've never boxed her before. But she, everything she does, she's left-handed here, and she eats left-handed too because when we're side-by-side side in a booth, we bump into each other. So I know that she does that, but that's about it. Uh, I write with my right hand. I throw with my right hand. If I were to box, I'd box left-handed. I, th- I do everything right-handed. Allie has a measure of talent beyond me. She knows how to write with her left hand. I think she could probably write fairly decently with her right hand as well. She'll tell you she's no good at throwing lefty. She can't, she can't get the coordination right, even though this is her dominant hand. Uh, my point is that these guys trained for this. Even those guys who are switch hitters in the major leagues, I studied it out and I looked up and I found out what they do. And they take literally twice the batting practice. Because if you think about it, even if you have a beautiful natural swing, they are constantly adjusting Up the elbow, just this much, digging in, close the knees, open the shoulders, whatever the case might be. Some of them have some really wacky stances. But they look always, always they're looking to improve and perfect if they're any good at their sport, if they are actually looking to progress. And they have to do the same on the other side. And even if they are capable of hitting a 99-mile-an-hour heater coming down the plate, 
if they're capable of hitting that at all, they're still. I mean, that's that's talent, but they're looking to do it at a major league level. They trained for that, and they well, the baseball players train. Guys who are able to switch up in whatever sport, girls who are able to switch up and kick with their left leg as well as their right leg, it's impressive. These guys who were sitting here and they were slinging and shooting arrows, uh, right-handed and left-handed, they trained for that. They trained. Um, now, where are they from? Where did it say there? And this is what I find rather interesting. There in verse 2, using both the right hand and the left hand in hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. It says that they were of Benjamin, Saul's brothers. And as you rewind and you look back in Judges 20, when it talks about the battle that was going to take place, who were those ones who were left-handed? They were Benjamites, yes? They were from Benjamin. Now rewind all the way back to Judges 3. And where was Ehud from? Well, he was from Benjamin. He was Ehud the Benjamite. I find that rather interesting. Now listen, I don't want to sit and just make conjecture and infer. and all. Well, I do want to infer. I don't want to just make conjecture and speculate. But it seems like there's a one, two, three lines of clues here. That perhaps, perhaps, there was a tradition in Benjamin. Or a training practice in the tribe of Benjamin where different ones who were willing to, capable of doing so, became ambidextrous and trained both right side and left side. We have special forces. I just finished reading a book about, and I've read it now two or three times, about this man, Adam Brown, and the things that he overcame to become a Navy SEAL. Listen, I'm not going to give you my thoughts about war and, and death and killing and all of those things. But it's an amazing story, this guy. Lots and lots of things he overcame in order to reach the pinnacle, the pinnacle of that level of, well, of service and that level of warrior. He trained and trained and trained, had his dominant eye shot out, had his dominant hand rolled over and crushed, so he retrained himself to be an elite class sniper and, um, well, with his non-dominant eye and be able to draw his weapon, use his weapon, do all the things that he had to without the use of his right hand. Remarkable stuff. Remarkable. It was incredible what he was capable of doing. He trained for the special forces. You suppose maybe Benjamin had special forces? These 700. 700 who trained to use both right side and left side? Perhaps. Perhaps. Ehud was a Benjamite. And perhaps he was left-handed because he trained to be. Maybe he had use of both hands, but since he had that capability on the left hand, he used and went and did something that would be unexpected, un, well, unprepared for by those who were patting him down. I don't want to go any further with that conjecture, but the potential is there that he had trained to be left-handed. And they were identifying that as they wrote that. So, why was Ehud noteworthy? Whether he was literally unable to use his right arm, whether it was actually impeded or not, or whether he was actually born left-handed and possibly stigmatized and possibly frowned upon for doing that, or whether he chose for himself to use both, I don't know what the situation was. But whatever the case was, Ehud was committed to what he did. Ehud was committed to acting in the name of the Lord and doing what the Lord had for him to do. And he did so with his left hand, likely with, well, with perhaps a little bit of stigma or a great deal of effort. He showed commitment. That's what my point is there. He showed commitment in doing good. So as we switch back here and flip back here to Micah chapter 7.
where it talks about the dedication of, well, the dedication of the enemy and his followers. Woe is me, for the faithful man has perished from the earth. No one upright among men. We read in verse 5, Don't trust in a friend. Don't put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from your own wife. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. There's evil and wickedness. And they have come in. And they are going to continue to come in. Deceivers. Evil men and imposters waxing worse and worse. We can read, read about in, in Scripture. These ones who have made it their effort and trained that they might successfully do evil with both hands, with the intent of wrecking things for God's people, wrecking lives, wrecking comfort, wrecking peace, hindering God's message. These ones, these ones who are allies of the enemy and the enemy himself, they've trained for that. They've trained to be ambidextrous in sin and wickedness. They're practicing for themselves. In Micah chapter 2, in the first verse there, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. There are those ones who are doing so, who are preparing and planning and, well, um, rehearsing in their mind, you might even say, wickedness. At morning light, they practice it, it says, because it is in the power of their hand. They're practicing this. They're doing their very best to be quite efficient and to be talented and skilled. In wickedness. The enemies of God are practicing and training for the evil that they'll work against God's people, and they're committed. But it's not unnoticed by the Lord. It's not unnoticed. Notice that it says, Woe to those who devise iniquity. Woe to those ones the Lord takes note. The Lord recognizes, and the Lord has plans for those ones. I believe if you look on the other side of the page in, in Micah chapter 2, I should have turned over there. But on the other side of the page of Micah chapter 2, uh, well, it says there in, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. Those ones who choose to practice evil, the Lord has preparations for them, and woe unto them, those ones who are of Israel or Gentile alike. Woe unto those ones who have practiced sin, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. Listen, saints, if the enemy is capable of doing evil to an exceptional, efficient, talented, skillful way, if they're capable of training and doing this wickedness and opposing the Lord with both hands, can't we just do the same that Ehud did and train to use both hands, both figuratively and literally, in service to the Lord, in battle for the Lord, in the warfare that He calls us to? Can't we train ourselves... Allow the Holy Spirit to do it, certainly, to train us to be, well, that every faculty of ours, every capability of ours, whether we have it now or He needs to give it to us, that those capabilities and faculties might be applied 100% efficiently as He leads towards His work. Whatever your hand finds to do, I mentioned this earlier, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And I would encourage you, whatever your hand finds to do in service of the Lord and obedience to Him, not in whatever you find that you would like to do. Whatever your hand finds to do, as directed by the Lord, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. We have limited time, and we have a limited vapor of a life wherein we might take these hands that the Lord has blessed us with and have them trained up in doing, well, 
well-doing, doing well. We're more than capable of being strengthened, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 tells us we can be trained and spiritually ambidextrous. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, whatever weapons those might be, whatever the Lord arms us with. For casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We don't know what the Lord will call us to in our spiritual warfare. We don't know. We're called to endure hardship as a soldier of God. We understand that. And he has enlisted us. We sing that song, I may never march in the infantry. Ever think about that song when we sing it? We're, we're busy trying to... Wondering who's looking at us while we're growing up, marching in the infantry and riding in the cavalry. This never felt very manly, I'll be honest with you, but it's fine. I do it anyway. It's VBS, and I want to encourage the kids. But think about the words. I may never march in the infantry. I may never ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy or do anything else warfare-related, but I'm in the Lord's army, and he calls me to something in battle for him. May not ever be shooting a gun, drawing a sword, throwing a punch, anything violent or physical or anything of that nature. But it says here that the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down bloody arguments. No, arguments shouldn't get bloody, but for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. No, we might not ever march in the infantry. I might not ever have to go up against Eglon with a foot-long dagger and plunge it into... (laughs) Horrifying, man. Horrifying. But I am in the Lord's army, and I can be, and I should be fiercely purposed, fiercely determined, and well-trained to use both of my hands, that they might be equally skilled, both of these hands. One is taken from me, the others taken from me, whatever the case might be, that they might be equally skilled in doing the will and the work and the warfare that God has called me to. Offering every capability that I have or every capability that He's going to give to me so that I might do as He calls me to. Be like Ehud, child of God, that left-handed man of faith. And despite whatever pushback, whatever well stigma, Whatever issues, whatever struggle, whatever training is necessary to yield both of your hands, literally and figuratively, in the name of God, be like Ehud and do so.